Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor of The Athletic and Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. This week's guest is Manchester United's Christian Eriksen. United, of course, feature in a Manchester derby with a difference on Saturday. It will be a unique FA Cup final driven by familiar tribal emotions. So look at it dispassionately, Seb. Is this the biggest remaining threat to City's ambitions of winning the treble? Well, dispassionately, Mike, I don't really see any threats remaining for City's treble. But you can definitely make the case. I think the longer you watch the game for and the more time you spend in its company, the more you realise that FA Cup games, derby game, a period of the season where Every green light seems to be showing. The road down the street is clear. No traffic at all. That's typically where you get sideswiped. So I suppose I'm kind of deferring to fate a little bit. I can't really make a rational footballing argument for Manchester United upending them. City just looks so dominant. They're also, I think their their run of momentum and form has, it's been as perfectly timed as I can remember. Their show of strength came in at exactly the right time at the point at which Almost every other club was flagging from World Cup excess, length of the season, injuries, whatever you like. They look as good as they ever have done under Guardiola. But the problem is, is that in what Manchester United have carried, even during the sort of down period in the decade after Alex Ferguson's retirement, is Man United will always carry a punch just because they have the financial muscle to guarantee that. And... Whenever you have something like a European Cup and whenever it means as much to a club as it does to City, because that's the one prize remaining for them. And I don't care who you are. I don't care which of the players you're referring to. Those players want the European Cup. The FA Cup is still a very, very important tournament, but it hasn't eluded City in the way that the Champions League has. And so you can make these little arguments. That being said, it's a different conversation, but I I, I think maybe Simone Inzaghi's Inter Milan are living a little bit underappreciated ahead of the European Cup final. But Manchester United are, are a different weight class of opponent for sure. Mm. Well, lest we forget, Tony, United did beat City 2-1 at Old Trafford in January and they did so on 29% possession. They'll need that sort of efficiency at Wembley, won't they? Yeah, they will 100% need that efficiency <laughs> with their 29% possession and maybe a good slice of luck as well. I guess even under Eric Ten Hag, who renowned for this kind of possession game at Ajax, United are still 
as they have been for a number of years, they're most dangerous on the counter-attack. And they showed that against City in, in January when they caused huge problems in transition and probably should have been ahead at half-time, although they weren't. That luck that I mentioned eventually went in the way on the day, didn't it, when Marcus Rashford was about two yards offside but didn't touch it. Fernandez goes through scores and there's all sorts of mayhem ensues. The template is there for how they can cause City problems. One point for United to worry about, I mean, one of many points for United to worry about is that that game came before City's tactical shift, bringing John Stones into midfield in, in, in what seems like now an impregnable team and a team that's much harder to counter-attack against. They have this kind of, they now have this kind of four-man box in defence when they when they lose the ball. And that includes Carl Walker at the back, who, um, as we saw against Vinicius Junior in the Champions League, kind of just absolutely loves a one-on-one pace battle. And there's a few guys in that United team I think he'd love to come up against. So you can't really see United having the same joint on the counter-attack as they did against City in that game. On the plus side, they did win that game without Lisandro Martinez, who again isn't isn't playing this week. He was a late, really late sub in that first, in that league game, and Anthony Martial, who featured in the first half of that game, obviously misses the final. But the question is, is uh, they still won it without him. The question is how aggressive Ten Hag wants to be in his selection. Will he play Eriksen as a as a holder alongside Casemiro and, and play with a more attacking front four or? As he did against City in January, will he play a, a more defensive midfield alongside Casemiro? It's Fred then and play Eriksen further forward and Fernandez played wide. And then who starts as a nine with Martial missing? I mean, plenty of questions as ever with United and I'm not sure how many answers they'll have against what, to, what seems just like an impregnable City team. And Seb's absolutely right. They are looking as good now as they ever have under Guardiola. And that's pretty scary. Mm, certainly is. Christian Eriksen has more reason than most to want to seize the moment. He's a naturally philosophical character who's beginning to understand what playing for Manchester United means. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your time. We're coming to the end of your first season at United. Has that period been long enough for you to understand and appreciate the intensity of that derby rivalry? Yeah, I, th- I think so, but I think it's also from, it's difficult, you know, but like you said, you haven't been there for a long time, but you get the feeling from a lot of people around the club, and when you come to a club like here, there's a lot of people who's been there for a very long time, so you get really the feeling from them known very early on, like this is a very big game. So yeah, I do think the rivalry terms have come across early on, yeah. Mm. Wembley's going to be a unique occasion in, in many ways, but you've already won there this season. I know it's unlikely to affect the substance of the game at the weekend, but do you believe in that sort of power of self-confidence? Yeah, we've done it once, we can do it again in this environment. Yeah, I think it helps. I mean, there's always a first time for everything. And then afterwards, obviously, I think everything comes not easier, but you get more used to it. And we do know, of course, the the finals again now with the FA Cup is going to be completely different compared to one against uh, Newcastle. But uh, now we're really looking forward to it. And I do think that we are in a good place and feeling confident going into the game, yeah. Mm. Did you watch FA Cup finals as a boy? Because football's changed in many ways, but it's still seen as a global occasion, an FA Cup final. So as a kid growing up in Denmark, did you watch it? Uh, no, I didn't really uh, watch it. Uh, not so much the FA Cup. I was more the... Back then it was probably almost Champions League or local games or, of course, when Premier League was on, but nothing. I don't remember one final watching or one game I've been watching more of the, the bigger Champions League games and the local team. So, yeah, no, not, I didn't watch any FA Cup, no. When you beat 
City at Old Trafford in January, you did so by making the most of your possession, but also limiting them to one shot on target. Yep. What do you draw from that performance and the way that you countered you know, their obvious qualities? Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's in the game plan. I mean, it's from what the manager would want us to do. Uh, I'm not sure about the game plan for the final yet, but <laughs> what he's going to make up and uh, make us do. But no, like, I think from that game, we, we show that we are capable of competing against them. Obviously, they, they won the league, so we know they're, they're feeling confident, but we're sure that we are, we've shown it before and now we need to show it again on a big occasion to be ready to compete. Mm. What are they like to play against? Uh, yeah, no, it's a very strong team. I mean, they have no, uh, they have no real weaknesses. All the players are, are top players, and yeah, they are a team that will create chances. And with the players they have, if you give them too many chances, they will score goals. Mm. To redress that balance, look at yourselves, if you could. If I had to, if you had to tell someone from a visitor from Mars, well, this is Manchester United, and this is how we play this game that we call football. How would you describe your sort of signature style? I would say offensively, enjoyable, yeah, and front foot. I think that's one of the, the things that the managers put in from first day, that we want to be on the front foot, we want to go forward, we want to have the ball as much as possible, uh, we want to create chances. So yeah, I think it's, uh, I would say, if it's someone from Mars pops up, then it would be uh, enjoyable. Mm. You know, I've spoken to other players of around about your age about the value of experience. The consensus view is that you can never stop learning. Do you identify with that? Yeah, definitely, yeah. What have you learned, say, in the last year or so about your style, your game? You know, you've come to a different club. Do you have to adapt in any way? Yeah, no, definitely. I think you have to... I think every player has to adapt when they move to a new club. Is a most, not almost every time is a different manager, different style, and he wants you to play in a certain way. Uh, obviously, the the own capacity you have, like the own quality I have, of course, I bring them in wherever mm. wherever the manager wants me to bring in, and you bring them in by yourself. But yeah, no, it's I mean, experience yeah, is something you don't really think about until you get older, and then you're just like, yeah, I've been there, I've tried that. You're more relaxed in certain situations, you're more calm in different situations, and and you know how everything is going. Mm. So you you almost like find certain situations or passages within the game yeah. familiar yeah. and so you know you're comfortable with them so you can actually react accordingly yeah 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 no it is yeah it is uh, it's like the same before if you've been there sometimes you've been there once you want to be there again or you are going in the same situation uh, last time i did this i feel comfortable doing this and yeah it's something you just learn with time yeah what about the nature of playing for manchester united it's a club you know they've been interested in you reportedly for a number of years the reality of playing for Manchester United, does it demand a certain type of character? Yeah, well, I think so. Obviously, you have to have a lot of qualities to play for as big a club as United. And I think also you need to be, a, you have a bit of a, a heavy skin because there's a lot of focus on the social media side, on the United players. And I think also a lot of the players get a lot of, on, I would say, not important and not needed criticism. Uh, on a lot of things uh, and it's just because it's United I mean the focus is just different so I think that's the the main difference compared to other clubs because mm. in the modern game you just got to shut the noise out haven't you definitely yeah yeah do you do anything specific about that you know you don't maybe go online or, or is it something that you be quite self-contained about no I think I've been lucky I've had uh, 
the right people around me from day one, and I've had the, the right education when I was younger from my parents in, uh, in certain things, and just learning from being in the football. There's a lot of things that you can't control, and even more so with these days with social media, there's a lot of things you can't control at all. Um, and of course, uh, sometimes if you're playing a good game, maybe you want to look at it and then def. But you do know next game, if you play bad, it'll be completely different comments. And that's just how the football games goes and how people react. And that's also what makes it exciting. But mm. as a player, you have to shut it off. Because mm. it seems that the national character, the Danish character is quite laid back. Yeah. I'm old enough to have actually sort of been brought up on the sort of Danish dynamite team. <laughs> yeah. You know, the sort of uh, Preben Elkjaer. Laudrup, yeah. All, Laudrup, them, yeah. all those guys. Yeah. I loved working with them because they were so laid back. Yeah. They didn't win anything, but somehow that didn't matter because of the memories that they made. Oh, they won the Euros. Yeah. 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 I know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. But what I'm saying, you know, that team though, the 84 yeah, team. Yeah, 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 true. That, that was, you know, an amazing team. Yeah. Arneson and the, the Olsons and people like yeah. that. Again, being brought up with the tradition of those teams, I know you weren't around at that time. How important is that? And did it help to create you as a player as well? Yeah, I think so. I think it definitely, I think that's the same as even if you take compared to Edge United. I mean, you compare United now to what it was 20 years ago, where they were winning everything, now everything is different at a different time. And same with Denmark back then, they were that exciting new upcoming good players in between and that of course after you have to try to live up to the expectations you had before and whatever happened before and of course but no I think that was the time that the education in Denmark started to change a bit of the football terms how you wanted to play football and the players and the talents we would brought up afterwards so yeah I think it has helped me that they were like you said not winning but they were successful in a positive way on on the whole country and everyone uh, in the world and that also I think put a football fever into Denmark, yeah. Mm. You're a boy growing up. You're playing your football in the park or wherever you, you yeah. played. Who were you? What player were you? Who were I? Uh, yeah, I was exactly the same. <laughs> I think as a as a player, I haven't... Uh, Did you have one hero that you tried to emulate? Yeah, but I wasn't really a... Uh, I was more the guy who wanted to be outside and just be me, just play. Like, I didn't have a dream of I want to be like him, I want to be like him, I just want to be football player. I don't care what it is, who it is. I'm just going to be me and I'm just going to play football. That's what I'm enjoying. But then afterwards, a little bit when I was older, was like watching clips from Michael Laudrup, looking at them also because of the Danish history, obviously. And then Totti, but Totti was from like, I didn't watch any games with Totti. I just football manager because I played football manager on the computer. It's like, yeah, this is Roma, Totti. I'm a fan. But no, I was more, I wanted to be outside myself, touching a ball, playing with a ball and literally just be everywhere with a football around my feet. Yeah, because in many ways, football is becoming more of a science, but it is also an art, isn't it? Yeah, not that funny. And are you an artistic type of football person? Yeah, I think so. I do think personally I'm more enjoyable to watch in the stadium than on YouTube, I would, <laughs> I would say. And you have different, I think, these terms today. There's a lot of players where, or from FIFA, whatever, there'll be uh, with the young people playing FIFA and everything, they'll be, oh, he's very good on FIFA, so he must be very good in real life and whatever. I think I'm more the person that you need, if you want to see me, you want to, you need to be in the stadium to watch me because that's where I think I can do the most. Mm. It's been 10 years since you made your Premier League debut with Spurs. Oof, yeah. Really? Sorry to remind you of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How has the game changed in that time, tactically, technically and physically? Uh, yeah, I think physically similar. It's always been, I think, Premier League has always been uh, one of the, the toughest leagues. I mean, it's going up and down all game. Tactically, I think it's changed uh, even more on the 
possession side in the last few years, like controlling the game and not as open as it was before England in the beginning. Yeah, I think that's probably the the biggest thing that's changed, I think. Football for many people is about belonging and memories and dreams. From a personal point of view, what dreams have you got left to achieve? I've always been a guy who just takes it at a time. So let's say for this season, it'll be this season we want to be. Now it's the FA Cup final, I want to win the FA Cup final, that's the next dream. And then next season, there'll be another dream of I want to be, we want to go as fast as possible in Champions League, we want to win the league, we want to win another trophy in another cup or everything else. Like it's just, it comes and goes every season for me personally. But at the same time, just my dream is to just be happy playing football, enjoy playing football, and then obviously winning. I mean, it's, it's a lot more fun to win them than to lose. Mm. You talked about enjoying football. Do you even sometimes surprise yourself? You might do something or there might be a small passage of play that you start or whatever that you think, yeah, this is why I do it. Yeah, it occurs, but not really. It's difficult to say there's like a certain times where you just stop and you think about it. It's more afterwards. I think it's always, also where injured is like you, you find out what you miss when you're away. So it's like when you're in it, it's of course it's tough because all the games and all the, you need to win games, you need to do this, you need to do that, it's tough. And then obviously when you're away from the game, you're thinking, oh, I miss football so bad. So it's actually not too bad playing. I think it's more on that side. And when I'm playing, I'm just uh, enjoying when you're there, you should enjoy it. Mm. Is it instinct? Yeah. Yeah, me as a player personally, it's always been instinct. I mean, I play football on what I see, what I feel, take the touch that I feel is right in the right positions and then move where I feel most of the times are comfortable in or instinct, yeah. Mm. So to bring it all back to where we started and Wembley in the FA Cup final, a club like this needs to win trophies. Yep. What will be the effect, do you think, on the club and yourself if you win this weekend? No, it'll be massive. I think it's been a uh, roller coaster of a year, but I think also at the same time we are we have pushed that we've shown ourselves that we can be a team that can compete for the biggest trophies. And now we are in a final, so it'll be a uh, it'll be the perfect ending of a uh, season with a uh, break of a World Cup in between and also a uh, a League Cup trophy. And now the FA Cup, yeah, that'll be very special. But uh, yeah, we need to have a good game to, to win that, but it's uh, definitely a big game. Mm. And a final point, the finals feel different. Yeah, it always does. It always does. But I think also it should. I mean, the final is what you aim to be at, to be able to win a trophy. And you work all the hard work before, everything before is trying to get to the final when you're there. It's about being at the final, obviously. And then either you win or lose, but you have done everything you can to be able to try to get the trophy. Okay, well, best of luck. Thanks Thank you very time. much. Thank you, you're welcome. Thank you, man. You're welcome. Thank you. As I said, a really laid-back character and someone, you know, a player who admits to operating on pure instinct. I found that really refreshing. Me too. Me too. I, I, I think, let me have a guess as to why, Mike. I think that as time goes on, it becomes more and more of a coaching era. We talk about philosophies. We talk about high priests of different styles of the game. And in nearly every case, but you know, your apex predators, your, your Kylian Mbappes and Erling Haaland's and, and players like that. We think of players as not really autonomous anymore, like the age of the great playmaker vanished a long time ago. 
I don't mean the playmaker in the sense of like the Ericsson type. I mean, the kind of the guy that strolled around and did no running and just, you know, found 40 yard balls that are not defenses. Ericsson isn't that, but I, I think you see the kind of artistry in someone like that. And one remark that he made in your interview, which really stuck with me and which I, I completely believe in and, and understand is that when he said that to appreciate me, you have to watch me in the stadium. And I spent a long time covering Tottenham during his period at the club. And he's absolutely right because there's there was this delicacy to his football and a kind of a a rhythm to the way he passed the ball and to what he saw on the pitch, which made you appreciate him. He's not something that does roulettes and dragbacks and flick flacks and all the rest. He's not, as he says in the interview, he's not the guy that a youngster playing FIFA today zones in on and, and wants to play as because he's not the most elaborate footballer. But then he's someone who he's someone who probably could have played any in, in any era. Right, because he has that core set of abilities and that sort of that mental reading of the game. And that's probably what he meant by instinct. He plays what he sees and he adapts around it. And I've seen him play passes that nobody in the stadium saw other than him. And that's not really coaching direction, is it? That's just a, a player's IQ and a player's mind for the game. Yeah, he was a he was a joy to watch. Yeah, a really um a really interesting character. Yeah, well, as we mentioned in the interview, it's 10 years since he started in the Premier League with Spurs. A generational player, Tony, What give us an appreciation of his impact, please. Yeah, first and foremost, I'd like to just basically echo everything everything Seth just said. He's probably, in terms of, you spoke to him a bit about those great Denmark teams, and it's quite scary that he's young enough that he didn't even really remember the, the great 84, 86 team that you referred to. But he's probably as close to Laudrup brothers and definitely Michael as, as arguably any Danish player since. And kind of in my view, Seb's alluded to it, but it's absolutely no coincidence that Tottenham's drop-off in form and results started when Ericsson left in early 2020. He brought that Tottenham team. Guile is the word that I like to use for players like him. And his ability to see a pass, to pick a pass, to play between the lines, to play forward, to know where his teammates were, to know where the space is, to know what your position is, brought the best out of Harry Kane and Son Heung-min. And they've just, ne- they've just never replaced that. The reality is that for, for Tottenham, Harry Kane has been the player that has dropped back and produced anything close to that guy, or possibly when fit, Rodrigo Bentancur a little bit. But I'd, I'd have him up there with someone like, I was trying to think of who I'd, and again, you don't necessarily need to compare him to anyone, but somebody in, in the same Premier League era that I'd put him alongside, and probably someone like David Silver at Manchester City. Like, not an obvious physical presence, never going to beat players, never going to sprint past players or even kind of use a trickery sub just referred to, but glides through games, finds pockets of space and has the ability to create for others. He's 31 now and, and probably hasn't had quite the same impact at United as he had in his time at Tottenham, but he's still a wonderful player to watch. Totally agree with Seb. The, the one bit of the interview that I picked out amongst some of the really nice lines was a bit about his kind of claim that you, you, to see him at his best, you need to watch him in the stadium and really follow him. Because like all great midfield players and attacking players, he doesn't always get found, but his ability to keep finding space, to scan constantly, know where everything is, it's just, he's wonderful to watch. And the reality is, if United are going to cause City problems at the weekend on Saturday, then he's probably going to be central to that. Sure. you know It's not just policemen who are looking younger, these days, Seb, it's footballers. What what struck me was that, you know, I I loved those Danish teams of 84 and 88. <laughs> he wasn't even born then, which, <laughs> which got me going. Is he the inheritor of that great Danish tradition? 
I don't think so. I'm tempted to draw the straight line. I see him more as a kind of, he feels like, it's going to sound terribly pretentious. He's like a footballer of the world, isn't he? Like in the sense that he doesn't obviously come from anywhere. Like in the old days, like you talk about us getting older and I'm nearly 40, so maybe this will age me. But I think that back in the 90s, if if we all remember that, um, footballers had traits depending on where they were raised and which academies they were brought up in. Now, we know Ericsson was raised by Ajax and he came through their system and in many ways, when you watch him play, he has a lot of those tendencies. But I think now that's quite a homogenized skill set. It's just in his case, it's taken to a very advanced level. And I think that, I mean, it's kind of what I said before, but if you were to come across a football pitch anywhere in the world, just walk up as a, you know, you're having a wander around and you were to watch a game of football, like I, I think you could find someone like him anywhere, not playing to the same level, of course, but like with the same mind for the game, good touch, good ball control, good pass, good rhythm, can take a set piece. There's a Chris Nerickson moment that uh, will always be my favourite. It was, um, I think it was in, in the sort of late season of 2017, Tottenham were playing at the Liberty Stadium. And I was in the, the press box there, which you guys know is quite low to the pitch and it's quite close. And he scored the third goal and he he ran onto a through ball and he had a goalkeeper to beat and a, a defender in his way. And he just shimmies a little bit, doesn't touch the ball, sends both the wrong way and then just strokes at home. And I just remember thinking that's just that's just outrageous. It kind of got lost in the moment and it's never going to feature in a goal of the season, but it's just, it's that sort of class, I think, that you're looking at. And so I don't necessarily associate that with the old Danish sides. I remember them being very, very dynamic, like watching Brian Laudrup was just an absolute privilege at times, particularly during his time at Rangers. And it's very sad that he was only briefly at Chelsea. Michael Laudrup <laughs> just... A phenomenal footballer who probably had he been born 15 years later would just be an icon now in a way that he probably unfairly isn't ericsson is just yeah, i don't say citizen of the footballing world that's too far <laughs> even for me <laughs> but you know what i'm getting at he doesn't yeah, yeah. belong anywhere he's just he's just football's own player but wasn't that the essence of of watching football that you, you talked about that there seb just that moment that memory that to me is what it's all about it's actually not the trophies that they win and the medals that they have, which is why I love those Danish teams because they were wonderful to watch, but they didn't win anything. Obviously, they won in 92, but, you know, the 80s teams were fantastic to watch. You know, really, as you said, dynamic, which then goes on to the point, you know, a lot of modern footballers now at the highest level, you know, their brands, as we know, Neymar. Now, he is being linked, Tony, to Manchester United. Frankly, my... My instinct would be to run a mile. Do you think they should or do you think they will? Do you think they might be lured into it? First and foremost, I'd like to congratulate Seb on the phrase global citizen of the football world or whatever it is. I'm going to definitely try and get that in somewhere at some point. Look, look out for some coaches' voice content featuring that phrase anytime soon. Um, I, I don't think United should touch Neymar with a barge pole. I think United of of years gone by in the post-Ferguson era would have been tempted because it's the Glazers' way to just chuck a load of money at signature signing and and hope that that will be enough to keep them out of trouble for the next 12 months. Eric Ten Hag strikes me as an eminently sensible coach who won't want to be anywhere near a Neymar transfer. Doesn't mean there there aren't holes that have to be filled in this United team. And actually one of the holes that I think they should be looking to fill is alongside Casemiro in central midfield. It's kind of... It's where Exxon has played a lot this season, but I think 
that's one of, that's a key area that they really need to still to still work on. But they shouldn't be touching Neymar with a barge pole, should they? Uh, well, I wouldn't have thought so, but um, who knows? With City, we do know what we're getting. Seb, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier. What about the impact, recent impact on? what I'm really going to say unfairly uh, are almost second-tier performers behind Haaland and, and Kevin De Bruyne. I'm thinking Grealish, Bernardo Silva, Gundogan. They've been extraordinary in the last few weeks, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, oh, three of the ones you've mentioned, I feel like Gundogan and Bernardo Silva, I think if you go back the last couple of seasons, you can find really crucial interventions from them. Gundogan especially has that almost intangible quality of finding goals at exactly the right moment he's almost obviously the the beginning of City's successful era was characterized by Yaya Toure doing quite familiar things like when they needed a moment invariably there he was strolling through doing something just impossibly elegant with minimum amount of fuss and Gundogan stylistically not the same kind of player but same trait Grealish to me is it's been the real surprise because I think well there's two things I mean I think it's fair to say that when City spend £100 million on a player, it isn't quite the same as another club spending that amount of money because it's not quite as essential that they succeed immediately because you don't get the same pressure. That being said, I feel like Guardiola's effect on Grealish has been to make him more complete on the ball. I think he's a better carrier of the ball. He was a very good distributor and playmaker at Aston Villa even when he was back in the championship. But I think the other element to him is his work rate. I think some of the moments that I remember from his season and not necessarily his goal-creating contributions, but moments where he's tracked back 40, 50 yards, which is not something you necessarily associate with Grealish. And like I, I don't know whether that's just something that I've missed in the past, but it's certainly something that I've noticed this season. And, and it's this kind of... What makes it super interesting, actually, is that when you talk about those three players as second tier, you forget that they sold Raheem Sterling over the summer, who's been as important to them as any player in their last sort of five years. We haven't even mentioned Phil Foden, who is kind of the golden child of English football. Has been not it feels, describing it as being barely relevant to this season feels very dismissive and and derogatory. That's not what I mean. It's just that he's not he's not at the kind of the vanguard of their excellence at the moment, which is an amazing thing to say. But yeah, every everywhere you go, you have people who are able to contribute in the, in the important times, and it's. I think that's that's what allows them to have these great surges of form because they're not dependent on the same player all the way through the season. Erling Haaland had a, a magnificent season. He did not have a consistently excellent nine months, which is something that's probably forgotten. And yet you have other guys that are willing to pick up the flag. There's Gundogan at Everton. There's Grealish for you know the last eight weeks of the season. It's an amazing level of quality. It really is. Mm, and when you add... Pep Guardiola to that mix, Tony, you've got something special, haven't you? You know, inevitably named the LMA Manager of the Year on Tuesday. I thought it was very interesting. I've, I've been hearing that once the title had been secured, he was heard complaining about how tired he felt. Now, you can you can understand that, can't you? Because you know, it's just the mental demands of a season which is unique by its nature. And as Seb said very earlier on, Tony... He's been a bit like you know, the classic racehorse trainer, just getting his thoroughbred to peak for the right time. Yeah, and also something he has in common with a lot of those trainers is that they never stop thinking. He's he never, you know, I mean, it's, he's known for it. He never ever stops planning, scheming, 
theorizing i'd also by the way i'd like you i'd like to see you go to pep guardiola and refer face to face as bernardo silva gundogan and Grish, a second tier performance and see what <laughs> see what he says to you i did say it was strictly relative <laughs> <laughs> true true yeah we've, we've been here before with pep haven't we and i think as seb says i think we've you know we've got used to city finding form at the right time and going on these really really big runs Historically, in the English game, they've kind of started with kind of late December, early January, and then possibly tailed off a little bit at the end, which may explain some of their Champions League failures. This season, it feels like it's been timed slightly differently. I mean, look, let's be honest, it helps when you've got a squad that just has such quality and such depth. No no other team in Europe has the capacity to make so many changes and manage their squad and, and change their starting eleven without it making a difference as City does. But it's the quality of the coaching that's responsible for those all those players fitting so seamlessly into a system and a style of play when they do it's it's absolutely frightening a lot of I, I obviously speak to coaches a lot of the time and you know a lot of them talk about their relationships with players and their ability to communicate and actually coach football coaching has a lot in common with teaching. I know plenty of teachers who when the term ends they just immediately get ill. <laughs> and that, that, what, what you just said about Pep Guardiola strikes me as being particularly relevant. As soon as there is a bit of success, then there's suddenly just, you know, a bit of relaxing and, and the body tells you that, that you've been overdoing it. But it seems to me with an FA Cup final, and particularly for this club, a Champions League final to come, I'm sure he's found his mojo again quickly enough. On the widest possible point, Seb, you've got, one question to answer really what needs to happen for the gap between city and the rest to close well i could probably answer that question in quite a facetious way but let me be diplomatic mike i think what you need is limitless wealth and the best coach of the generation in multiple different places at the same time I'm not trying to be difficult, but that is what it is. Let's not be disingenuous. I think both things can be true at the same time. City are an amazingly wealthy organization. They're very well run and they have a coach who is a master of his field, like a, a true kind of maestro of the game. And what we see today is a team that draws all its strengths from those various places. And if you can't match that, good luck. That's English football now. So. I'm not sure. I don't have an answer for you. I, no. I, I don't know what it is, but then I don't see any evidence that anybody else has worked it out either. Like, I think that we can look at league tables year by year and say, yeah, but the gap was only 10 points. Be like, well, yeah, but if you look at how excellence is, has been sustained under Guardiola and you look at what trying to keep pace with City has done to a team like Liverpool, who were absolutely fantastic for three years, just brilliant. One of the best teams I've seen in my lifetime, definitely. I don't know what the long-term answer is, really. Mm. Well, in terms of Liverpool, Tony, you know, they're going to reap, it seems, the Brighton dividend. Let's put it like that. You know, Alexis McAllister coming in. Obviously, you know, you're close to the club. One player's not going to be enough, is it? No, no, not, not even close. McAllister would be a great, great addition. I've been watching him closely since that, that first thing happened. And I think one thing that this current Liverpool team has lacked that it had in previous in previous years was that ability in midfield to be great on the ball, to keep possession, but to be physically relentless as well. And actually, I watched McAllister closely against Man United, I think, a few weeks ago, and I was surprised at his physicality. Like, it reminded me a bit of Genie Wijnaldum in that just he just actually just doesn't get knocked off the ball, no matter what you think of him. He just, no matter what you expect him to be, he is incredibly strong as well as technically 
very brave. Rumours yesterday linking the club with Kefren Turan from Nice, who is a really exciting prospect at 22 and a player who could well take the pressure off a, a kind of still, in my view, creaking Fabinho. But I think there are still question marks over centre-back. And if, you know, whether Klopp continues with Trent Alexander-Arnold in this midfield experiment where he looks at times glorious, but if he does and the team sets up with a back three in possession like, like City do, then that raises question marks over Randy Robertson, who is pushing 30 and, and not a natural in a back three. Not short striking options, even with Firmino gone, but questions there, how to accommodate them, what to do with Darwin Nunes, who had a actually pretty good season in first in, in terms of numbers, but it could have been better and... But like Seb says, you know, this Liverpool team, a better version of this Liverpool team has pushed City incredibly close in two seasons and not quite got there. The gap between City and Liverpool this season was 22 points and could well have been much bigger if Liverpool hadn't finished the season so well and City hadn't just dropped off a bit because they could afford to. And then the other question with Liverpool is how the the Thursday-Sunday cadence of Europa League football will affect them. It's not one that strikes me with a huge amount of confidence. I think it doesn't do teams a huge amount of favours. I cannot. I don't think Liverpool will be as bad next season as they were this at times, but I just cannot see how they're going to get anywhere near City. I, City, to answer the question that, that you asked said previously, it needs the ownership or the manager to leave for, for any team to get close to City, I think. That's mm. that simple. With that wealth, with that, with that, those amount of resources and that particular manager, I just can't see how anyone gets close. Arsenal were brilliant this season, but in the end, they didn't get close. <laughs> they were it's kind of, I mean, just sorry to jump in over you there, Tony. It's kind of frustrating that, because you're quite right, Arsenal were absolutely fantastic and made a huge jump on where they were the previous season. It's it's really dispiriting that their attempts to keep the title race alive into May got met with a kind of the tedious, um, mouth-breathing, <laughs> bottled-it discourse, which I, it, it frustrates me. I'm a, I'm a Tottenham fan. Naturally, I've got an aversion to that kind of <laughs> conversation. But you think like, Apply some context. Look what they've done. I'm praising them through gritted teeth, but it would just be churlish not to recognise the leap forward, almost the quantum leap they made, and and the fact that really, against almost every other comp- uh, opponent in Premier League history, they would have been champions. It's it's very very difficult. Mm. Look, it seems that Casado's going to Arsenal. Tony, is this going to be the acid test of Brighton's model? You know, they're lucky that they've got Deserby, who's already been described to me as one of the top three coaches in Europe. Have they got enough about them to keep it going? Well, we talk about Bryson all the time, don't we? I'm not sure any manager who loses 5-1 at home to Everton can be put in the top three at Europe, but um, <laughs> it's probably probably quite a flippant line. But Deserby's been brilliant, hasn't he? In terms of impact, style, he's made such a huge impact in a relatively short period of time. And his team, albeit with Caicedo and McAllister at its heart, play with kind of confidence, patience, wit, a lot of wit I think this team plays with and they've been great. I mean, they absolutely, <laughs> I mean, no team I don't think has battered Liverpool quite like they did at, at the Amex earlier in the season. It was 3-0, it could have been could have been 10, honestly. It was just a remarkable performance. They'd beaten Arsenal, they'd pushed, they'd beaten, outplayed United twice, although one of those was Graham Potter in charge and they, they've been toe-to-toe with City. But they've sold players before and they, they continue to find them. You know, it's not as discussed previously on this pod. It's not just about the manager. It's about the whole structure of the club. And yeah, Dan Ashworth's gone to Brighton. But so it's a big test of kind of David Weir and, 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 and you know, Tony Bloom around them, Paul Barber. But they have shown a remarkable ability to keep progressing. Deserby in his first six months or whatever it is, 
has continued that trend. Like you say, the acid test is how they develop and how they recruit to cope with the loss of two sensational players. They've done it before. I mean, I, I hope they do it again next season, of course. As ever, it's, it's the kind of double-edged sword of qualifying for Europe, but then having to face a you know a much more intense fixture schedule than, than Premier League teams do if they're not in Europe. Same can be said for Aston Villa. So we'll see how they do. But I really like the way Deserby coaches. I really like the way Brighton play. And we've already seen towards the end of the season players like NCISO that there are players waiting to come through there and, and have an impact. So they'll be, as ever, I hope, next season an exciting watch. Yeah, yeah. Dan Ashworth, slight slip of the tongue. Obviously, he's gone to Newcastle, um, uh, but you said Brighton. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, Newcastle. On Newcastle, Seb Ashworth has been quite prudent in his signings. They've obviously got a lot of money. Do you think in the years to come they'll build what I'll describe as you know one of football's death stars? They have the resources to build whatever they want to build. I think ahead of Ashworth joining the club and before the kind of the recruitment structure was settled, I think the fear was for Newcastle that they'd have that sort of post-takeover-itis situation where the right player is all the players and the right player is the one whose agent calls up most often, right? And that's not what's happened. Like if you look at sort of their spine, the signings there have been extremely astute, like Botman and Gamelish and Isaac. And, you know, I know Wilson came in before the takeover, but he's been excellent too. And and so, yeah, I mean, uh, there's no reason at the moment why the trend shouldn't continue and why the growth shouldn't hold. The one cloud I would say, if you're a Newcastle fan, I think you wonder about just, uh, and purely because of what we've seen in the past, so you have the coach who's equipped with all the new parts, right? And then he seemed to be an excellent coach because of the way he builds. And you know, Eddie Howe's done a, a wonderful job. And there's that argument at the moment about whether it's the money or whether it's how. And really, it's both because you, you can't separate one from the other. Eddie Howe's done a wonderful job there. He's, he's done terrifically well. What happens when perhaps the rate of growth exceeds what he wants it to be or when there's a downturn in form which is kind of inevitable in football because it happened even to Guardiola at City it happened to I always remember what happened to Mark Hughes at Manchester City didn't do a lot wrong didn't do a lot wrong I mean wasn't what they needed him to be but it you know they were still in a growth stage and he kind of got sacrificed in in the process so you just wonder politically how that's going to work maybe there's Nothing to fear, maybe. But it's an interesting storyline, a plot line for next season. So I think also it's worth remembering that we've talked about Manchester City and, and the scale of what they've been able to build, but it's taken 15 years, right? It's taken 15 years. And, and even under Guardiola, we're in what, year six with Guardiola? Is that right? Seven, is it? Seven? Maybe coming up to seven. Yeah. So this is not a question of you have money, you have a good season, you qualify for the Champions League and suddenly you're over a threshold from which you can never be dragged back. I don't think that's necessarily the case. So it remains a process. A lot of clubs have had money, maybe not quite this much. A lot of clubs have employed very capable managers and a lot of clubs have bought very, very good players. But it's still 2023. Paris Saint-Germain continue to knock themselves out of the Champions League every season. <laughs> you know, there are ways to get this wrong, is what I'm trying to say. And so whilst the odds obviously heavily favour Newcastle's ascent continuing apace, and I'm sure they'll spend a lot of money over the summer and etc., there are still questions to be answered. So I, I don't know what it is that they will build. But um, yeah, it's looking uh, quite decadent so far. Mm, well, yeah. 
you were talking about post-takeover chaos, or alluding to it anyway, which brings us obviously very neatly to Chelsea, Tony. Pochettino's priorities. He's already made his uh, first choice, while Felix is uh, leaving just as we were learning to pronounce his name. Welcome signs that the owner is uh, stepping back, isn't there? Uh, I'll believe it when we see it. Um, Seb's <laughs> reference previously to the right player being all the players is, reminds me of Chelsea's recruitment in the past in the past season. I mean, you know, like you say, step one, make the decision on Felix. There's about another 20 players he needs to make a decision on. The number one priority by an absolute mile is just sorting the squad out. Who stays, who goes, who plays. How quickly can Pochettino build some kind of forward momentum after what was just an incredibly damaging end to the season for Chelsea. I mean, the banter machine kind of flew into overdrive around Frank <laughs> Lampard, didn't it? But the reality is that that, that, that Todd Bowling Co. took over that club and they wanted a genuine title bid at the start of the season. And they finished 12th, guys, 12th. You know, one for the kids here, but that's the kind of number, where, you know, the, the grandstand Viddy principle would be putting those, putting that number in letters in brackets, wouldn't they? It was just so, it was so shocking. But that's the, the, the absolute, the, the really kind of damning verdict on Chelsea is that by the end, them finishing 12th wasn't actually a surprise at all. They were that bad. So as discussed on this pod before, I think, like when we were discussing the likelihood of Pochettino taking over, it's kind of a free hit for him. But how long does he get to make some serious progress with, with these owners? This is the question. I mean, that you know, it's not the Abramovich era anymore, but the signs are that he's not going to be given a huge amount of time. What happens if Chelsea is seventh after 15 games next season? Is that good enough? It's better than they were, but I, I don't know. I don't know. So time will tell. It's certainly going to be interesting viewing, that's for certain. Sure. If you look at the other runners and riders, Seb, I just want to pick out Aston Villa. They're in Europe in the in the Conference League. Are they primed? for the big push do you think they need a big summer like i i love what i've seen in the second half of the season i think you know emery was rightly in the conversation as one of the coaches of the season he's a brilliant job since he came over i thought it was pre-christmas Villa were not in a good place and i completely understand that why steven gerrard was dismissed i think what needs to happen when 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 you finish the season like that i think it's a mistake to see it as an indicator of what's about to come i think it's an opportunity especially with the Europa Conference League qualification to kind of attract a slightly different caliber of player, like a, <clears throat> an upbeat mobile club can never stand still. I think it's a lesson that everybody should have learned from Tottenham is that you don't look at your season, congratulate yourself and then do exactly the same thing next season because everybody else around you is getting better. So for Villa, set to run if perhaps they can bring in another centre-half, if they can... I would want another centre forward just to go with Ollie Watkins, just to take the burden off him a little bit and a little bit more strength in midfield, possibly. And yeah, and, and maybe I'm not wholly convinced by a couple of those wide players. I think they're they're really good sort of top eight players. But if you want to be in the conversation for sort of top six, top five, that kind of area, maybe an outside shot of the Champions League, I think you need to invest quite heavily instead of perhaps a Leon Bailey, who I really like, but whose form fluctuates quite wildly. Maybe you look at a kind of a Musa Diaby from Leverkusen. I, I don't know. But there's the money there, certainly. Um, Aston Villa is a very, very wealthy club now. And there's no reason not to. So if 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 the kind of everything is aligned and the recruiting works as it should and Emery gets what he wants. I've heard stories of him being interested in um, 
Shivani Lothelso, who's obviously a Tottenham player, but has been on loan at Villarreal and with whom Emery has worked in the past. I think it's really important in this situation that you give Emery what he wants. I think that was one of the problems that he faced at Arsenal. One of several, but one of them. Make sure that he's committed. Make sure that this fan base who are so enthralled and enraptured by what he's been able to do are able to kind of sustain that optimism. That's really important. Capture the mood. I think that's 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 a really undervalued aspect of, of what a club needs to do between seasons. I think just on that point, I think the signing of Alex Moreno was a really interesting kind yeah. of sign of where Villa can develop it. And, and like you say, giving Emery what he wants, he's immediately improved the team. And I think two or three, they need they need many more than two or three new signings to really compete at the top level. But two or three or four good, correct signings in good positions, which Emery has, Emery's pedigree suggests he's absolutely capable of doing and, and they can kick on. But I wonder whether kind of, you know, top six and good, good European run is probably the peak of their ambition for next season mm. peak of the ambition for the relegated club statement of the obvious is to get back are any of those three Seb capable of immediately coming back to the Premier League well you'd probably say Leicester but it really depends on what they lose over the summer for instance if you were to say Jamie Vardy wants another season at championship level you'd say well that's quite interesting and then you could probably withstand losing a sort of um, a Madison. Tillemans will go, obviously. So you're rebuilding in midfield and Didi probably moves off elsewhere. Like you still have the parts there to be very competitive. But then you don't know. Like I, I feel like we've been in a situation so many times before with clubs that go down. It, it almost feels like you, you need to kind of have a period of convalescence before you return. Leeds, a, a little bit of an asterisk because I'm not sure what's going on with the club's ownership at the moment. And I don't think anybody really does. There's a lot of very good players there that just haven't performed. A couple that aren't going to stay there, a couple who were bought for very, very big money who have been dreadful. But if you were able to, I don't think Sam Allardyce stays and I don't think it's the right decision to have Sam Allardyce stays. But if you were to bring in a coach, stabilize the club's ownership and keep a kind of a useful core, I think that's a very competitive championship side that should be within the top six, certainly qualifying for the playoffs next season. So you, you, you can see it. Southampton... Southampton, not so much immediately, but I can see in three years, some of those younger players developing to the point where they become very, very good very quickly. And also, like I think we've had some fun with some of the ownership's decisions, and rightly, because some of them have been dreadful, particularly around the, the kind of the coaching staff just hasn't worked at all. And, you know, that's on them, unfortunately. But if this ownership model is able to kind of you know, um, mature in the way that it intends to, then you can see that becoming not exactly like, but not a million miles from the club that came up all those years ago under Nigel Adkins and then with Pochettino and Komen. You, you can kind of see something vaguely similar, but evolved developing there. So I'm, I, they're not a hopeless case. Mm. What about the standard of the championship, Tony? You know, if you think about it logically, probably only Burnley of the promoted teams are likely to survive what, looks like turning into sort of a 6-17 scramble. You know, you look at Wolves, Bournemouth, Everton, if they can't sort out their ownership issues, being in and around it as well. When you, And obviously you've got Sheffield United and Luton, who with the greatest respect will be relegation favourites. Yeah, and Sheffield United have ownership issues of their own, don't they? It seems to be ongoing forever. Burnley, I mean, I was, I was 
you know, we were very surprised. I don't know why I was quite so surprised that Vincent Company had such an incredible impact at Burnley this season because, let's face it, if we're talking about quality of coaches, he's played under the greatest coach generation for a good number of years, so I wouldn't have had a positive impact on him. But um, in, in what is such a brutal division for Burnley to, in the end, absolutely coast it and, and in some style in terms of the way they played as well was really impressive. And you are right, you know, my, my immediate instinct is that it's going to be harder to do that in the extra pace and with the extra quality of the Premier League. But as you say, there are clubs there at the bottom end of the Premier League that, over whom cloud, dark clouds loom, particularly Wolves and Everton, two clubs that don't look to be going in the right direction and don't seem to have any any obvious sign of resolution coming soon. Bournemouth to a, to a degree as well. So we'll see. Um, yeah, Sheffield United, you know, they're just one of those teams that historically don't don't survive in the Premier League particularly very long. And Luton, I mean, just the most incredible story. I'm hoping to do some stuff with Rob Edwards soon, so I'm looking to, to, to get a, get stuck into him and what he's achieved there. It's funny, isn't it, how, how coaches' reputations can go up and down so quickly. Rob Edwards was really quick to pay tribute to the work Nathan Jones did over in two sustained spells of quality at Luton and development. And, you know, Nathan Jones might have been watching on thinking maybe he should have stayed there rather than try tried his hand at Southampton, which went horribly wrong. But I'd be absolutely astounded if Luton were able to stay in the Premier League. Absolutely astounded. But just, just them getting there is a phenomenal story. And seeing Kenilworth Road back at the top level of English football for the first time in a very long time will be worth it in terms of nostalgia for some of the dinosaurs like us. Not everyone's still under 40, Seb, on this call. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. for that, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be great to see how they how they go. And I, I'm obviously looking forward to seeing how Vincent Company does cutting his teeth in the Premier League as a coach for the first time. That's that's the real the real interest of the, the three promoted teams. Yeah, sure. Now, Seb, you're in Dortmund at the moment, a city in mourning, simply because Bayern somehow won their 11th successive Bundesliga title. In general terms, what's the impact of such crushing dominance? probably an answer that you have to divide into two sections Mike I think obviously it's no secret that Germany was behind Borussia Dortmund for the most part other than in sort of you know maybe Gelsenkirchen um I think clearly everybody wanted Dortmund to interrupt the dominance and to stop the, the Bayern domination at 10 years I think there's a lot of sympathy for what happened I don't think I've ever seen a team so emotionally burdened by what was happening it was almost quite difficult to watch. I've certainly never heard a full-time whistle at Signal Duna Park being greeted by silence. At the same time, and um, I'm still learning German football and I'm still trying to get around the country as quick as I can. I've only been here for a couple of years now. But to me, like one of the, the big differences is the winning and losing isn't quite as important. So yes, from a branding perspective and from the reputation of the league, it obviously doesn't look good that they've had the same champions now for 11 years in a row. But the more games I go to and the more matches I cover and the more people I get to know and visit, the more you realize that actually match day in Germany is, is an occasion in itself. And you go, you want to win. Of course you do. Like it's football, right? But there's always something else about it. There are all kinds of things which feed into that. I think the, um, you know, the transport is better. You're not treated when you go to a match in Germany as if you're doing something subversive, which you are by the authorities in England a lot of the time, unfortunately. Not always to the same degree, but I think we can all relate to that. And also, I think that whilst not trying to oversell German football as a political entity, when you go to games, invariably, there is something else going on beyond what's happening on the pitch. So last couple of months, it's been the issue over selling 
future broadcasting rights and uh, marketing rights for the, for the Bundesliga and this sort of capital investment project which got voted down by the clubs last week it's a little less binary and so from my perspective it doesn't dim the experience like I, I love German football it's been it's been very very good for me in a lot of ways and a lot of sort of personal and professional ways I guess but it just doesn't matter as much and, and maybe maybe this is a kind of Stockholm syndrome situation where because Bayern have dominated for so long you come to convince yourself that that's the case I don't know but it doesn't stop people selling out stadiums like I I live in Hamburg I'm in Dortmund today but I live in Hamburg and I went to several games at the Volkspark towards the end of the season 57,000 people in the second division like the appetite for the game isn't affected by what Bayern Munich do or do not do the discourse is yeah and the discourse from abroad is yeah and I, I guess sort of the DFL and the people responsible for the league's overseas reputation would dearly love it if they had a new champion every single season but it's not necessarily the definitive issue all the time it's just yeah okay i'm sitting in dortmund saying this it feels kind of wrong as like a a tottenham fan who lives in hamburg he's come to dortmund i feel like like a a bringer of misery (laughs) (laughs) but it's just one factor it's just one discussion point in german football is there an awful i I don't want to sound like i'm like i'm working for the tourist board now but there's just more to it than that and it's an incredibly rich football culture um i do sound like a member of the tourist board but so be it well, whichever way we look at it, with Manchester City in mind, the decision about those 115 Premier League charges, which City obviously deny, is likely to be a seminal moment for the game over here. I understand the resistance of City fans to what I call the asterisk syndrome. Yet the reluctance to take City's achievements at face value is equally understandable. The lawyers will be doing the club a disservice if they allow this to drag on for a couple of years, as seems bleakly possible. Now, state funding and soft political power is already distorting competitive tradition. If that's used in defiance of the rules, which, again I'll stress, City deny, it will destroy the notion of meritocracy that should underpin sporting activity. Pep Guardiola is not the only one to want a quick decision on those FA charges. Football needs it. Otherwise, this will fester, views will become increasingly polarised and poisonous. Thanks, in the meantime, to voices of reason like Tony and Seb. And in a football sense, this season has been compelling. Let's just hope it's remembered for the right reasons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.